Hi there, uh, I'm Tim Lindsay. And I'm Christian Bonner. This is Under the Radar, a Rolling Stones podcast about deep cuts and hot cookies. And let me tell you, this is not your father's Rolling Stones podcast. We're here to serve up opinions you're not going to hear on any other format or medium because we're the only people in the world who think like this. Yes, uh, we have consulted with uh, top Rolling Stones uh, clergymen, gurus, economists, shamans, uh, people from all walks of life, really. And they've all said to us, we really want to hear your uh, idiosyncratic pontification and, and highly partisan opinions about the Rolling Stones. So we're starting because it is the 20th anniversary of uh Really, the what could easily be the flagship for this uh, whole yeah. story here it's is the landmark album of the '90s. Really, for me, it was, but uh, I had a pretty weird '90s. Uh, but we're talking about Bridges well, to Babylon. We all had a weird '90s. Yeah, there's a lot I don't remember. Um, but uh, we'll no. go into like the context of this album. But we should say today the focus is on the amazing 1997 Rolling Stones release, Bridges to Babylon. Yes, and and so we this is right around the time 97, 98 is right around the time that I got into the Stones, and I I have to admit that I was a Beatles fan for a while. Well, yeah. the Beatles were kind of inescapable the years before that, right? They had a big renaissance with the anthology it's TV true. show. I didn't think about that, but that's true. And, you know, this was for the reason, and this is all important. My personal journey here is important because when everyone else was getting into grunge, mm-hmm. I was getting into the Beatles. Right. And then everyone thought, well, this guy's really weird. And now it's kind of accepted that there are classic rock people in high schools, but there, I, I was one of the first. I'm not, I'm, I, You're I, I'm going to plant your flag there. I invented this. Okay. <laughs> I just want everyone to know. So when we are talking about, you know, growing up, we should mention that we're, 80s kids. Yeah, I'm, I'm 84. I'm an 86 baby. Yeah. So uh, what what happened was, you know, when we were kids, uh, you had the grunge revolution. Uh, we're both Canadian, so it wasn't MTV, but it was much music, which is like your kind of main diet of video and, and music information on the Rolling Stones or on any other band that you cared to get into. You watched it. I remember watching the music video channels, even though I didn't like them. Sure. Uh, There's and, a lot of garbage on there. Oh yeah, and 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 you know, a lot of people, a lot of people will also famously remember if they knew me at that time that I was very opposed to uh, the pop music and hip hop of the '90s. But I have I have really flip flapped on that <laughs> hard. I listened to 2001 pretty much every day. Yeah, Dr. Dre, uh, Snoop Dogg, Mar- Mariah, all of them, like all the '90s people. Mariah. I I listen to. No, yeah. I do because I think the production is fantastic, and I realized, you know, this is a great thing to talk about because. I really like the way production, a lot of people talk about 90s production and, you know, we should also mention that we're both audio people, but like a Mm -hmm. lot of people idolize 90s production, but when they say that, they're talking about Steve Albini and the way he produced Nirvana. Yeah, the live off the floor kind of thing. That's all fine. Yeah. That's not what I'm talking about. I want to talk about Dr. Dre. I want to talk about Oceanway Studios. Mm -hmm. I want to talk about, you know, session guys making the AAA pop music because and I th- that's basically what this album is that is totally what it is because ocean way is is where british to babylon was made yeah in, it's a big los angeles studio with several different live rooms if you look up ocean way studios i guarantee you many of your favorite records were done there all yep. the disney scores were done there yep. anything orchestral all the nelson riddle sinatra stuff a lot of the beck records that are actually good were all made there yeah so that the beck record the reason why one of the technical reasons that is fa- that people will find interesting here one of the reasons why if you think about the records like 
Odalay or Bridges to Babylon or 2001. Mm -hmm. The thing that they all have in common is organic um, musical elements sure. made, made on real instruments. Live drums. Live drums, live vocals with synthesizers. And the reason, and loops. Yeah, Pro and Tools loop. is in there in the mix and samplers. Yeah, and the reason all this stuff was able to blend together, I believe, is is very much thanks to the Focusrite Forte console that they have there. Because right. So we should explain for non-technical people, when we're talking about the console, that's the big mixing desk that you see everybody with their hands on. So the, the elements that go into the song, all the different separate tracks of the recording, have to go through the console in order to be mixed together. Yes. And so it's so kind of the glue that's helps everything sit and, and so the together. isa 110 preamps that are in the Focusrite for forte console they are just colored enough to be interesting mm -hmm. and they are but they're clean enough that they can blend so when you've got uh you know somebody like charlie watts who is a very traditional drummer like he plays the same way he's always played he's got a style that's very much influenced by swing and jazz drummers Engineers hate him. Yeah. So, <laughs> this one weird trick to mic up a drum kit. Yeah, and he's very dynamic. And very, the point is, the reason why engineers don't like him is because he's very dynamic. And he, like, he'll hit the kick drum harder, for instance, in the chorus. He hits the snare very light. Mm -hmm. um, he uses flat rides, which kind of, they're, they kind they're of wash, in, wash yeah. into everything. Yeah. Um, so, so it's I, hard to get a good uh, drum tone that sits with other instruments when that's his sort of, and, you know. And, style. and Bridges to Babylon has this wonderful, airy quality to it. It yeah. is just so, it's it's like it's transparent and it's got this clarity and everything, mm -hmm. but there's no sacrifice of the low end. There's, you know, because sometimes that's kind of the way it goes. You, you can't get everything. I always used to, when I was getting my records mixed, I always used to say, well, why can't I have low end like hip hop and high end like rock? Well, because there's only so much yeah. bandwidth you can use. But somehow on this record, there's a really interesting dynamic interplay, uh, particularly between the bass uh, guitarists, whom on there are many. There are many. It, it is a tour de force of bass playing. Yeah. Uh, so we'll talk about that a little bit more when we go in depth, track by track. But we should talk a little bit about how the Stones' career was at this point. Right. Okay. So there's a lot of talk about, uh, oh, they did it in separate studios mm -hmm. and it was a mick and keith solo album and all yeah because there was all this talk about how much they were fighting and there was fighting but that came on the tour yeah the and i think that the any differences they had in the studio were purely over creative matters rather than over and work and simple simple amount of work right mm -hmm. they they had two of them going the, the the fights definitely did happen towards the end when it came into like Keith trying to nullify anybody seeing my baby by saying it was copped and stuff right. like that. And I think Keith sort of walked out towards the end of the mixing process. No, he... Mick is the one who walked out. Oh, really? Mick is the one who walked out because it was. if you look at the credits, there's a lot of Waddy Wachtel, there's a lot of Blondie Chaplin, there's a lot of Keith's people. And right. Keith was basically the one who kept digging in his heels about everything. And saying like, no, I don't want uh, this new style production. You know, mm. the story about talking to Babyface and saying your face is going to look like mine when you're done with this <laughs> and all this stuff. Like, so he clearly was. A, I mean, but that's Keith, right? right. Uh, I have, I no longer um, really romanticize that kind of behavior of him, and I actually think that it's. It's very disappointing because we would have had like, if you think about how much of the '70s was lost to heroin sure. and crummy behavior. Well, by the time the 90s roll around, the Stones had already done several 
significant tours that sort of reintroduced the band after a long hiatus. Yeah, okay, so we're talking, to contextualize this, the band nearly broke up in the mid-'80s, and then they kind of reformed with Steel Wheels, Mm -hmm. and that's really because Ronnie Wood kind of brokered a a piece there. Yeah, so when Jagger and Richards get back together and start writing songs together again— they're off to the races. There's a big world tour for Steel Wheels. Then Bill Wyman leaves after that's over. And then they get a new bass player in. Daryl Jones. Yeah. Who, and, and, and you know, when when people say, oh, it's the Stones and all these other people, it's like, I want to say that I am as excited when I go to see the Stones. I am as excited to see Chuck Lavelle, mm-hmm. to see Daryl Jones, to see Lisa Fisher, to see Tim Reese. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now uh, it was Bobby, but now it's Carl Denson. Mm-hmm. These are some of the best musicians who have ever walked the face of the planet. I recently spoke to somebody on Twitter who was saying, oh, Gimme Shelter's the best uh, Stones song. He's saying, oh, you know, Gimme Shelter's the best Stones song, but it's all Mary Clayton. And I said to him, you know, like, Lisa Fisher has really owned that part. Yeah. Since they've been touring with her as the kind of uh, lead female vocalist or only female female vocalist since i guess voodoo lounge in 94 she's been the one and now they've got sasha allen as a sort of fill-in but uh you know lisa fisher is the backup vocalist along with bernard fowler in the stones now so people are always saying like oh it's the vegas years they have these like big groups behind them it's really actually not that big of a group unless they've got the full horn section out with them, which they did for steel wheels and they dropped it for voodoo lounge and then brought it back for this album so I think on Voodoo Lounge there's a horn section, but it's no, there's like, a horn. There is a there's a. It's certainly not as small as it was on um, the uh, 2012. Like, right, Zip they went down code. to just two for the yeah. 50th anniversary. The 90s still had like when you look back and they still have this huge four piece horn section. Okay, but fine. How are you going to reproduce? Uh, you know, when you look back at the 70s, it's like I don't think they did tumbling dice anywhere near the way that song needs to be performed. Until With the full arrangement. Until Chuck Lavelle. Yeah. I mean, for one thing, for one thing, you couldn't hear. Like, if you go back and look, okay, ladies and gentlemen has like a vibe and whatever, but it's like, it's very slow, it's out of tune, it doesn't have the scale and the grandeur. Mm-hmm. That needs to come off like effortless. It can't sound uh, labored. So what the big band really does for the Stones is allows them to dig into those arrangements and open them up for a, a big stage for the audience. So... When you go see the Stones and they do have that big horn section with them, the effect of it is to sort of broaden the sweep, make it more widescreen, so that, you know, when they're doing those big long vamps, like at the end of Tumbling Dice or in Jumpin' Jad Flash at the end of the show, you have the horn section there just to keep ratcheting up the tension and take it up a notch. Well, and it's, and, and, and that's, that's absolutely true. But I also think there's elements of it that, um, they have this huge amount of recorded material. And when people say, I want them to go back and do something stripped down. Well, Exile on Main Street has some of the biggest arrangements mm-hmm. in their catalog. I think the acts, I would have to guess that the very biggest one they ever did is you can't always get what you want. Sure. I don't think that they've ever had more people play on one track than that one. And so that's a very strange comment to me because XL on Main Street, contrary to con- uh, you know popular belief, we were going to talk about XL on Main Street anyway because I think Babylon is actually the, probably the closest thing they've ever done. My feeling about XL on Main Street is that it sounds like 1972. Yeah. And when you look at you know the Mad Dogs and Englishmen tour, everybody had these big bands, and the Stones were looking at people like Little Richard or Elvis's band compared to Elvis's review. It's nothing. Yeah, it's really tiny actually. It's not, it's, it's not even half what's on Elvis's choir. Right. In the Stones. And even Bob Dylan at the end of the 70s was following that model. Yeah. 
the the rolling blunder review, yeah. as, as Tom Waits called it. So you've got the contemporaries of the Stones who kind of get a pass for all this stuff, and then the Stones when they try and like you know do a kind of neoclassical approach to it, they get slagged for being uh you know a Vegas review. And this is the this is the dichotomy, right? Okay, so the reason why this is important information is because. On Bridges to Babylon, you have these very, very big arrangements, mm-hmm. and it's kind of murky and dark. And there's when when I have pushed people as to what they don't like about the record, aside from some very tedious comment about not liking anybody seen my baby, right? When you really boil it down, it's um, about the use of synthesizers, and that's a very, very strange comment to me because there are there are there are endless. Uh, apologists for their satanic majesty's request yeah and the mellotron you know is a synthesizer essentially yeah it's a sampler yeah it's a it's, it's a, a tape very based sampling device yeah we split you're gonna split hairs here no like, like dollars to donuts the beatles used it you know, zeppelin, zeppelin everyone used it king crimson all these bands that everybody you know loses their minds over basically we're using a sampling device and all but you know a, it's essentially the same approach to putting something down on a digital keyboard only it has a tape loop even more interesting like the Mellotron, yeah. If you don't know about the Mellotron, go go read about it. Yeah. It's, but it's it's super cool. But even more interestingly, the first synthesizer that ever uh, made its way to England was collectively bought by the Rolling Stones. Uh, they sold it when they realized oh, this is you know really complicated. I think they sold it to Floyd or or somebody in King Crimson or something like that. But anyway, the the point about this is everyone was experimenting with synthesizers towards the late end of the '60s. There are yes. synthesizers on Jumping Jack Flash. There's a Mini Moog, I believe. I don't know, but no, no, no. I, I don't know anything about synthesizers. I shouldn't start talking about it. Um, <laughs> but the point is there, that there are synths on these records, yeah. on these timeless classic records, and no one bats an eye. Yeah. Yet people freak out about it happening in the '90s. Why is that? Here's my theory. In the late '60s and early '70s, rock was still. I mean, the second generation rock was still new enough, and that it meant we're experimenting, we're trying new things. Sure. But post punk, now remember, punk was a punk was a response to Prague more than it was a response to the Rolling Stones. If anything, Malcolm McLaren hijacked the Rolling Stones model and mm-hmm. just did it in an even more hyperbolic sure. way. Those guys wore. They, apparently, they used to line up to the Sex Pistols used to line up to kiss Keith Richards' ring. Well, like, you know, if anybody has a spiritual successor. In the rock and roll world, Keith Richards is like fathered many sons in that respect. Totally. So what you're looking at is the kind of post-post-punk fallout after Nirvana falls apart with the death of Kurt Cobain in the mid-90s. And the There's whole, a very polarized atmosphere. At that point, rock means we have guitars, there's no keyboards, there's a bass, and there's drums, and that's it. Yeah. And... To me, that is bizarre. Rock and roll was f- fueled by pianos. Mm-hmm. Um, Johnny Johnson's keyboard parts on Chuck Berry records are... Yep. Cherry Lee Lewis. Jer- I may have heard of him. Yeah. Little Richard. Mm-hmm. You know, P- Fats Domino. So many early rock and roll people were playing... Essentially boogie-woogie licks. Yeah, totally. And, yeah. Like, and, and they had upright bass, and they had a more diverse approach to... Uh, you go to Zydeco, you get... Um, the squeeze box. Right. So the, all these other colors were always there in the history of rock and roll. And Bridges to Babylon, I think for me, is quite remarkable in that it's making a concerted effort to get back to that. I think this is why they named it that way. It's like 
There's the, you know, all the artwork of the album is the, like, the stones standing astride these ruins. The tower, literally the Tower of Babel yeah, and a this, lot of that, um, you know, ruined Sumerian. golden age. You know. Yeah, and that it and that it's sort of this uh, again the hubris element yeah. that they're in they're very aware and to me to, to me this translated into what I believe is the most beautiful and the best set sure, for the a live show. show. Yeah. Oh my lord! Like the the, the winged uh, the sphinxes and everything like that. Mm-hmm. It's it's just staggering to think that that they had three of those. Yeah. Going around the country because if you don't know this, the stones have three. They used to do it. They knew leapfrog with two stages now, but they used to have three. Right. One would be being torn down, they'd be playing on another, and another would be being built in the next city. That's how they did it. Yeah, because the only way to get enough crew was to hire a local crew in each town to be building the stage in advance before the band got there. Yeah, and so you will not see rock tours done like this. No. I do not believe ever again. No. It is literally a bygone era now. We can't, you know, live music is still, like, bigger than recorded music as far as the industry goes, but... Uh, you know, the this is a the maximum of all maximum possible production value that you're ever going to see. Yeah. Um. So anyway, but the 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 point is that I I believe, and I'm I'm willing to I'm willing to defend this and risk. Um. Don't at me. Uh. <laughs> but don't, don't don't please don't come up to me on the street and give me a hard time about this. But I believe that you have to see if you look at the whole thing and you go back to the 50s and you know the whole history of 20th century music, I don't know how you can interpret punk as anything other than a huge step backwards. Yeah, really kind of uh, anti-progressive in all senses. You know? Yeah, and, 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 and another thing that needs to be said is that in the late 70s when, when punk and metal were fighting over who would inherit the legacy of rock and roll. Yeah. They most, the punks mostly just called the metal guys gay. And there was a gay scene in metal. Totally. That's sure. fine. But the way that they, they shamed everybody else. Right. And just were so hostile. But the fact is punk has not yielded a real musical thing. Now, when I'm, when I'm saying this, I'm talking about the New York and London thing. Mm-hmm. California punk is basically just surf music. Right. And I don't Played actually faster and louder. I don't have a problem with it. Yeah. I really don't. It's do up with 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 power chords. Fine, great, mm-hmm. great. You know, it's very musical. And I think that I think that what people are missing about that is that that's more in line. Certainly, like what were the Ramones trying to do? They were they were a surf band. You know, right. they wanted to go back to that thing of the fifties. They just didn't really know how. Right. Uh, so came across kind of you know this sort of four to the floor, very square rhythm. Whereas rock and rolls always had more swing to it. And I think you know. You look at the players on Bridges to Babylon, there's some, you know, pretty serious jazz influence in those musicians' pedigrees. Yes, if you anyone who really wants to pay attention will notice that there's a, an upright bass on Flip the Switch, which right. is the fastest until until Rough Justice, it was the fastest Rolling Stone song. It and beat, yeah, it Jeff beat, Sarley is the bass player on that. He's playing an upright like double bass. Yeah, and uh yeah, the Flip the Switch beat just to finish that thought, flip the switch, beat, rip this joint by like one or two BPM, and then Rough Justice beat it by something or something on a bigger bang beat it. There you yeah. go, train spotters. <laughs> Count those BPMs. This is important if you're making a, a mix. Um, okay, so gener- then the other thing I would have to say that we should talk about is the omnipresence of the video for Anybody See My Baby. Right. Because... Anybody see my baby is not. It's very interesting to listen to to Bridges to Babylon all the way through because it's about half a very rootsy, moody mm-hmm. uh, thing. And I'm not just singling out Keith's tracks, though. They're, yeah, most of them are his, but something like Already Over Me yep. or Always Suffering. I mean, these are these are uh, 
timeless. Yeah, very, very kind of uh, singer songwriter influenced uh, ballads with and, you know mixed vocal delivery and lyrics on them are great. Yeah, some of the best lyrics, especially "Always Suffering." I've mm-hmm. seen I've seen people talk about that a lot ever since I was on the Sticky Fingers Journal email newsletter which was my introduction to the rolling stones fandom if anyone else remembers that please tell me because otherwise i think i was just emailing you know a A phantom in the night 400 pound hacker sitting on his bed um (laughs) but anybody see my baby i mean i don't i don't know what the problem was um for and i know people who have no problem with miss you who suddenly get all snarly when it comes to that one i think it might just be a case of them being overplayed on the radio which is certainly not the band's fault but you know, both of those songs were really big hits and got a lot of airtime. And I think maybe people got sick of them. And I think that for some people, it's about where they are in their life. When I, I, That's a big thing. You mm-hmm. know, like Led Zeppelin has never provoked this kind of atavistic response in me that it does in a lot of people right. that I know. Uh, I do not have the Led Zeppelin gene. Uh, I have the Rolling Stones gene. Yeah. Uh, I have... Uh, like I, I don't know. I find I find anybody see my baby's a f- fantastic production. And yeah, I love the call out, you know, to the five boroughs. Yeah, in the middle, <laughs> that's great. I'm gonna gonna adapt that for Toronto, and he would adapt it. He would he would always adapt it. That's uh, right. They did it for South America on the the most recent uh, yeah Ole 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 tour. And that's that's a that's another fantastic little point there is that um, South America got into the Stones in the in the 90s, so they will always do. You got me rocking like a Rolling Stone, uh, out of control, out of control, sure. and uh, anybody see my baby? They will always do those down there because they did they did so well for them. Yeah, but and you, that Bismarck Key sample. I don't know if it's because the radio edit chops out some of it or whatever, but like you know, it's it's a real left turn for a band to sample uh, an acapella hip hop beatboxer, you know, with the Rolling Stones kind of past history of working with black musicians and like you know this but, is something but, that's but is it because mick claims to have done the first uh dance edit ever when he r- did miss you and he says that you know looking back now what he was trying to do was a hip-hop delivery mm-hmm. on miss you uh it's only it's, it's sort of it is there that thread has always been in there and you can look at black and blue where they start to like try and do reggae numbers with billy preston you know there's sort of some fumbling towards it, but it's really only until this record that they actually get it right. No, it's true. It's it's a lot more it's a lot more authentic, and certainly like you don't have to mean it uh, is a much better executed uh, take on reggae than mm-hmm. Cheerio Baby, as much yeah. as I like that, yeah. or or some of the other ones on on Black and Blue. So why don't we take a, a quick break here, and then we'll just break everything down track by track on the album. Station break. Thanks for checking out Under the Radar, a Rolling Stones podcast. I'm Tim Lindsay. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe. We'll have some more for you very shortly about the Bridges to Babylon album and many more Rolling Stones deep cuts and hot cookies. If you'd like to send us your feedback or a question, send it to rollingstonespodcast at gmail.com. We'll try and respond to it as soon as we can. Until the next time we say goodbye, 